what is Christian maturity? Am I personally mature? How would I know if I am mature? And then how should you evaluate your own life based upon the Word of God? Then let's make it a little bit broader. Let's say you and I are looking for a new church to attend. What are the three characteristics that that church should exhibit that would draw me to it? A police officer pulled a driver aside and asked for his license and registration. What's wrong, officer? The driver asked. I didn't go through any red lights and I wasn't speeding. The officer said, well, when a car cuts you off, you yelled at the driver. And then I saw you shouting at another driver. Is that a crime, officer? He replied, no, but when I saw the Jesus loves you, and so do I, bumper sticker, I figured the car had to be stolen. Sadly, the message on the bumper sticker and the character of the driver did not match. Thankfully, the group of people we are studying the Thessalonians, their character matched the bumper sticker. Turn with me to First Thessalonians, please. And as you're turning, let me uh, toss two questions your way. Number one, why were the Thessalonians model believers? And then number two, how can you become the same? First Thessalonians, let me read chapter 1, verses 1 through 4. Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy, to the church of the Thessalonians and God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. We give thanks to God always for you all, making mention of you in our prayers, remembering without ceasing your work of faith, labor of love, and patience of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ in the sight of our God and Father, knowing Brethren, beloved, your election by God. Let's pray. Father, we commit the series to you. Looking so forward to this, we thank you for these model saints and that their testimony still speaks 2,000 years later. Help our lives align with theirs so that our testimony will be strong too. Bless our study, I ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, as you're turning to Acts chapter 17, let me uh, give you a little background on Paul, Silas, and Timothy. That's Acts chapter 17. So as you're turning to Acts chapter 17, uh, this church was founded by Paul and Silas or Silvanus uh, during Paul's second missionary journey. It seems that they had left Timothy back at Philippi before taking this journey. Now, as we consider these men, I want you to ponder this. After leaving Philippi, Paul, he had been beaten, put in the stocks. And what does he do? Amazing. He travels with Silas 100 miles. Consider that. 
You were beaten, put in stocks, and then you still go 100 miles to your destination for ministry. Remember uh, Paul's question to Jesus after being saved? Lord, what do you want me to do? I think Paul took serious his commission. And then we also learn about Silas, who is uh, highly respected. He's a prophet according to Acts chapter 15, a highly trusted man by Paul, Barnabas, and even the church. And then we have Timothy, the name that you're probably more familiar with. Paul calls him my true son in the faith. That's 1 Timothy 1-2. He had a Greek father and a devout Jewish mother. His uh, mother Eunice, we know about her from scripture, and his grandmother Lois brought him up in the Old Testament. So he was prepped when most likely it was Paul who had led him to Christ. Paul would boast about his young son in the faith in Philippians chapter 2 and verse 22. But you know his proven character. That as a son with his father, he served with me in the gospel. Did you catch those words as a father with a son? That's interesting. 19 times, and that's no small amount, 19 times in 1 Thessalonians, Paul uses the term brethren, literally meaning from the same womb. And then nine times in 2 Thessalonians, he uses the same, the same term. It's family. And when you come to Christ, your family gets big. It gets big. Let me uh, just read to you a uh, first section here in Acts chapter 17. Now, when they had passed through Amphipolis and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica, where there was a synagogue of the Jews. Then Paul, as his custom was, went into them, and for three Sabbaths reasoned with them from the Scriptures, explaining and demonstrating that the Christ had to suffer and rise again from the dead, and saying, this Jesus whom I preach to you is the Christ. And some of them were persuaded, and a great multitude of devout Greeks, and not a few of the leading women, joined Paul and Silas. But the Jews, who were not persuaded, becoming envious, took some of the evil men from the marketplace, and gathering a mob, set all the city in an uproar, and attacked the house of Jason, and sought to bring them out to the people. But when they did not find them, they dragged Jason and some brethren to the rulers of the city, crying out, These who have turned the world upside down have come here too. Jason has harbored them, and these are all acting contrary to the decrees of Caesar, saying there is another king, Jesus. And they troubled the crowd and the rulers of the city when they heard these things. Verse 9 of Acts 17. So when they had taken security from Jason and the rest, they let them go. Paul, second missionary journey, along with Silas, goes to Thessalonica. Uh, today, Thessalonica is called either 
uh, Thessaloniki or Salonika. It is the second largest city even today in Greece with an estimated population of 400,000 people. In uh, Paul's day, Macedonia was the province in northern Greece that comprised not only Thessalonica, Philippi, and Berea. And then to the south, you had the province of Achaia with the noted cities of Athens and Corinth. Perhaps as Paul went into Thessalonica, there were about 200,000 people there. Now, as we look at verse 2, Paul goes into the synagogue and he preaches Christ for three Sabbaths. So some people believe, okay, Paul and Silas only spent a total of three weeks in Thessalonica. But let me give you some reasons why he was probably there several months. Number one, he had a significant Greek ministry, which would have taken time to develop. Second of all, he established personal pastoral relationships, which obviously would have taken more time. Number three, while he is in Thessalonica, the church of Philippi sent at least two offerings to Paul. Think about the distance, about 100 miles away. That would have taken quite some time. We learn that from Philippians chapter 4 in verse 16. And then the fourth argument, why I think Paul was there several months, is he worked manually. We learn from chapter 2 of verse 9 of 1 Thessalonians that he labored day and night not to be a burden to the brethren. So he was probably there several months before he was put out of the place. Now, the question, why does he go, first of all, to the synagogue? Why is it Paul begins there? Well, it's a principle that uh, Jesus had established that you go to the Jews first and then the Greeks. And that's what Paul actually says in Romans 1.16. He's not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God and the salvation to everyone who believes to the Jew first and also to the Greek. Now, as Paul is in Thessalonica, there are the Jewish leaders who do not like him, and they stir up a crowd. They have a riot, and what happens? The man who hosts Paul gets into trouble, and then basically has to put up bail for Paul and Silas to get out of jail, most likely at that point being dispatched so they could just get out of the region. So that's the background for our epistle. Now coming back to 1 Thessalonians, let me give you a broad outline for the book. In chapter 1 through the end of chapter 3, you have reflection from the past. And then as you transition from chapter 4, verse 1, to the end of the book in chapter 5, you have requirements for the future. In other words, things that Paul is telling these saints to do. Now, begin with me. In verse 1, we learn about Paul, who was the former prosecutor and persecutor of the church. In 1 uh, Timothy 1.12, he says, And I thank Christ Jesus our Lord 
who has counted me faithful, putting me into the ministry. But when you read the next verse, Paul says that he was formerly a blasphemer and that he was a persecutor of the church. The Lord Jesus confronts him in Acts chapter 9, and Paul comes to saving faith. Most likely, it seems that Paul writes this letter from Corinth. When you put together Acts 17, 18, and then over into chapter 3 in our epistle we're studying, verse 6, um, that's where Paul writes from Corinth. The year, approximately AD 50, maybe AD 51. And then you want to ask the question, what are the purposes for Paul writing? And I want to give you three, which kind of takes you throughout First Thessalonians. Number one, he wanted to write to show his appreciation for the church's spiritual well-being. Don't you get ecstatic when fellow Christians do well spiritually? Uh, in Third John 4, John writes, I have no greater joy than to hear that my children walk in truth. Paul, in 1 Thessalonians 1, expresses his thanksgiving for these saints doing well. Number two, remember how Paul's ousted from Thessalonica? Well, the saints would have been concerned about him, and then others started rumors about him. So, when you go to chapter 2 and verse 1, all the way through to chapter 3 and verse 10, he's assuring the church that he's fine and giving the reasons why he had to leave. And then finally, uh, the third purpose we find from chapter 3 and verse 11 through chapter 5 and verse 28 is encourage the Thessalonian saints to continue to grow in holiness and their walk with the Lord. Paul, following the model of Jesus from Luke chapter 10, sending out his disciples two by two, did not generally travel alone. So here we have him in the beginning of the letter speaking of Silvanus and Timothy. Listen to what the writer of Ecclesiastes pens in chapter 4, verses 9 through 10. Two are better than one because they have a good reward for their labor. For if they fall... One will lift up his companion, but woe to him who is alone when he falls, for he has no one to help him. And then in that same chapter in Ecclesiastes 4, this is verse 12, though one may be overpowered by another, two can withstand him, and a threefold cord is not quickly broken. And we have Silvanus. Uh, Luke regularly chooses the name Silas in his writing, which seems to be the name used when uh, Silas is with Jewish folk. Uh, we see that in Acts 15 and 16. But Paul and Peter both prefer Silvanus, uh, which is associated with the Greek audience. He is reputable. In Acts 15, when you put the entire chapter together, it seems that he is sent to the Jerusalem Council and then later from the Jerusalem Council. In Acts 15.32, he is a prophet. He receives divine revelation from God and speaks for God. That's Acts 15 and verse 32. And then when Paul and Barnabas have their disagreement, about Mark, John Mark, whether to continue to take him in ministry, and they separate. 
it's at that point that Paul picks up Silas to travel with him. Again, the name Timothy, you know better. His name means one who honors God. That's a great name. One who honors God. He's mentioned first in Acts chapter 16. He's called a certain disciple. So he is a a learner. He is one that is being trained in the ways of the Lord. Listen to what Paul calls Timothy. And how would the brethren speak about you? He is called my fellow worker. Romans 16, 21. Timothy, our brother. 2 Corinthians 1, 1. A servant. Philippians 1, 1. A true son in the faith. 1 Timothy 1, 2. And then a beloved son in 2 Timothy 1, 2. Paul is writing to the church of the Thessalonians. Paul was a church planter. He understood the importance of planting churches strategically. Both by land and sea, Thessalonica was easy to be accessed. People would come and go regularly. So he's writing to a church, strategic location, in God the Father, And the Lord Jesus Christ. You know, so often we read about the Father and Son, but it's intriguing how the Scripture puts them together. Let me just give you a couple examples here. Over in 1 Thessalonians chapter 3, look at 11 through 13. Now may our God and Father himself and our Lord Jesus Christ direct our way to you. Notice how the Father and Son... And may the Lord make you increase and abound in love to one another and to all, just as we do to you, so that he may establish your hearts blameless in holiness before our God and Father and the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ with all his saints. Uh, just one other example, and, there's, and we'll find more in Second Thessalonians, but in First Thessalonians 5, 18, in everything, give thanks. For this is the will of God in Christ Jesus concerning you. The connection, Father and Son. You have one God, three persons. Now, with Paul's customary greeting, he writes in verse 1, Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace, God's favor. And observe here that it appears before peace. And you might ask the question, why is that? Because it's God's grace that brings salvation, right? Because we're saved by grace through faith. And then once you believe in Christ, what do you experience? Peace. Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God. Through our Lord Jesus Christ. That's Romans 5 in verse 1. The uh, Greek term here, peace, eirene, occurs 92 times from the Greek New Testament. The related Hebrew term, shalom, means a fullness of physical and spiritual prosperity. But may I say to you, the Greek extends The idea of grace. Be anxious for nothing, 
But in everything by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your request be made known to God. And the peace, there's our term, the peace of God which surpasses all understanding. The peace of God is something that resides in the heart of the believer. And when we walk with God, the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace. And you have just that calmness. Just that peace that can only come from the Father and His Son in the midst of any situation. Remember Jesus and His words? These things I have spoken unto you, that in me you may have peace. There's a term. In the world you will have tribulation, but be of good cheer, for I have overcome the world. That's John 16 in verse 33. The peace of God surpasses understanding. Now in verse 2, we give thanks to God always for you. Do you appreciate pastors who employ what they tell others to do? Of course you do. Here, Paul, Silas, and Timothy regularly are giving thanks to God for the saints of Thessalonica. But in 1 Thessalonians 5.18, what does he tell the saints there to do in everything give thanks? He gives thanks regularly, and now they must also give thanks. Paul continues making mention of you in our prayers. To mention here means to recollect, to remember. Let me read you these verses. I'm sure you're familiar with them from Philippians 1, verses 3 and 4. I thank my God upon every, here's a term, remembrance of you. Always in every prayer of mine making requests for you all with joy. Isn't that how you want the leaders in your life to pray? And when they think about you, you bring them joy. That they can always come to the throne with such a fullness in their heart as they think about your Christian life before God, making mention of you in our prayers. God honors the prayers of the saints. James 5 and verse 17 puts it this way. Elijah was a man with a nature like ours. He had his emotional ups and downs. And he prayed earnestly that it would not rain. And it did not rain on the land for three years and six months. We don't come to God based upon our greatness and our goodness. We come to God through the person of Christ. We pray in Jesus' name, not as some magic formula that causes God to give us whatever we request, but it's because God sees us through Christ's righteousness. It's because of what Jesus has done for us that we can now go to the Father in prayer. And it's a beautiful Thing. Now, Paul regularly remembers three things. I love what he says here without ceasing about the Thessalonian believers. Number one is your work 
of faith. Now, observe the words of faith. It's a descriptive genitive. We'll have three of those. It's describing the noun before it. What kind of work is it? It is a work described by faith. Let me just share three things with you that's important for us to know about faith. Number one, you must have faith to please God. Hebrews eleven six says that without faith, it is impossible to please God. For he who comes to him must believe that he is and that he is a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. You cannot please God without faith. That's number one. Second thing, we are saved by God's grace through the instrument of faith. When you look at Ephesians 2, 8, and 9, for by grace you have been saved, and the means is through faith. Faith, taking God in his word, believing that Jesus died for your sin, that he was raised from the dead, and when you trust him for your salvation, you depend solely upon Christ, and what he did is our substitute. The scripture says that we are born again. And let me just point out number three, a work of faith is not a contradiction of terms. You know, when you think of a work and then of faith. Book of James. Think about this. James chapter 2 and verse 20 says, faith without works is dead. If you have Christ as your Savior, good works will follow. They have to. The examples given in James chapter 2, Abraham and Rahab. We learn that Abraham is saved, clearly. Way back in Genesis 15 and verse 6, he believed God and it was accounted to him for righteousness. Many years later is when he would offer up Isaac as a sacrifice. At least he was willing to do so. That's Genesis 22. But yet we see from James' writing that his willingness to obey God demonstrated he's what? He's saved. And then Rahab, described in both Old and New Testaments as the harlot. How do we know she was saved? She received the spies and then sent them out another Way. So you have a work of faith. I trust that that is you as well. These saints had a labor of love. See, work can refer to the finished work, that which is completed. Labor shows the toil in the service. A labor of love. It shows a strenuous effort. Laboring to the point of exhaustion, of perspiration. The example I want to give to you is that of Jacob who loved Rachel. Actually served 14 years for her. Now that's a labor. Seven years, finally given his wife, but had labored then another seven to complete the deal. That's amazing. Listen to Genesis twenty nine twenty. So Jacob served 
seven years for Rachel, and they seemed only a few days to him because of the love he had for her. That's labor, a labor of love. Just speaking here of labor, if you really have love, a love for God, you will have a labor for God. In 1 Thessalonians chapter 2 and verse 9, Paul labored day and night not to be a burden to them. He sacrificed. He worked in order to provide for his own needs to then be able to proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ to these saints. It cost him something. And by the way, every Christian, every Christian will be judged for their own labor. Listen to 1 Corinthians chapter 3 and verse 8. Now he who plants and he who waters are one. That's Paul and Apollos. And each one will receive his own reward according to his own labor. So write out. What have you done for the Lord in the last month? In the last six months? In the last year? What are your plans for laboring for him in the future. Know this. Your labor is not in vain. As Paul and Silas suffered at Philippi. And then made that 100 mile trek to Thessalonica. Their labor was not in vain. Any sacrifice you make for Christ is not in vain. 1 Corinthians 15 and verse 58. Therefore, my beloved brethren, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your labor is not in vain in the Lord. You should always, always, regardless of the hits you take in life and ministry, you still need to be abounding in the work of the Lord. You need to lay up treasures in heaven By the way, this world will entice you toward materialism. To make sacrifices here and now for better homes, better cars, better clothing. It's all about the material. But what shall it profit a man if he gain the whole world and lose his own soul? Materialism kept a rich young ruler away from Christ. You can't serve two masters. There needs to be sacrifice made. And yes, monetary sacrifices as well. See, in Hebrews 6.10, God takes perfect notes. His record book is complete. He is not unjust to forget your work and labor of love. That you have shown toward the saints. That you have ministered in the past is the idea. And continued to minister. That's Hebrews 6.10. And then thirdly here. Notice the triad. A patience of hope. Patience here from hupo meno. To remain under. There is suffering That is associated with the Christian life. It's through many trials we learn in Acts chapter 14. I believe it's verse 22. That we enter into the kingdom. 
All who live godly in Christ Jesus shall suffer persecution. We will have this world system opposed to us headed by Satan. So you can expect difficulty along the journey. So there needs to be a steadfast endurance. See, a patience that is described with hope. So very important. The temptation, child of God, is to run. That when you have a trial, whether it's health, whether it's financial, it is to get out from under the trial. And our problem is that we often do it in the flesh. Abraham is the father of faith. In Genesis 12, God says, leave your country. Get away from your family. But what does he do? He takes Lot with him. <laughs> Gets in trouble more than one occasion because he has Lot with him. And then later, God says, you're going to have a promised seed. You're going to have a son. Time goes on. Abraham gets impatient, listens to Sarah, takes Sarah's handmaiden, Hagar, legally marries her, has Ishmael. See, we try to figure out ourselves. When God puts you somewhere, his calling is his enabling. His calling is his provision. But what do we often do? We try to figure out how I'm going to come up with that extra money. How I'm going to do this. How I'm going to do that. You're in trouble at that point because now it's what I'm going to do. God's ways are not our ways. We need to remain under the trial. We need to continue to trust him and let him make the provision for us. He is ever faithful. We do this and we endure as we look for the return of Jesus. Because in verse 10, chapter 1, And to wait for his son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, even Jesus who delivers us from the wrath to come. So as we suffer, as we go through the trials, we have a hope that Christ is coming back for us. That's so very important. These believers were persecuted. They didn't run away. Look at chapter 1 and verse 6. And you became followers of us and of the Lord. Having received the word in much affliction. Notice as they believed on Christ, they began to suffer. But they had joy of the Holy Spirit. Remain under your trial. Don't run away. God has put you somewhere. Stay there. Be faithful to what he calls you to do. He'll provide. He is ever faithful the patience of hope is in our lord jesus christ in the sight of our god and father Hmm. god sees it all jesus knows it all seven times to each of the churches in asia minor in revelation chapters two and three jesus says i know your works He understands your situation. There are times he pulls back to see what you're going to do. Will you remain faithful? When he has given you direction, you stay right where he has placed you. You remain faithful. 
You don't turn to the right or to the left. You just stay there. Almighty God directed his people in the Old Testament. Pillar of cloud by day, pillar of fire by night. When God moved, they were to move. When he stayed, they were to stay. I find so often Christians jump ships, so to speak. They get antsy. They figure out their own way to do something. It always gets them into trouble. Like Abraham of old with Lot and then even with Hagar. God's promises will be fulfilled. When he guides you so unmistakably, you just stay right where he's placed you. He'll take care of you. He'll see you through the end. And then finally in verse 4, knowing beloved brethren, your election by God. Paul desires these saints to understand that they are saved. That before Adam and Eve walked on planet earth, they were called to him. Ephesians 1, 4. According as he has chosen us in him before the foundation of the world to be holy and without blame before him. With all this said, here's our main point. Model Christian maturity by exhibiting faith, hope, and love. Did you see those three words in chapter 1, verse 3? Faith, hope, and love. Paul says it this way in 1 Corinthians 13, 13. And now abide. It's a singular verb. But he brings three things together. And now abide faith, hope, and love. These three. But the greatest of these is love. What is faith? It is taking God at his word and acting upon it. It is embracing the promises of God and never deviating from them. We learn of Abraham, although he had his struggles. Romans 4 and verse 20 says he staggered not, he wavered not at the promise of God through unbelief, but was made strong in the faith, giving glory to God. Mature Christians, strong churches, have three characteristics, faith, hope, and love. Can't please God without that faith. You are to meditate upon Hebrews 11.6. That's your assignment. Without faith, it is impossible to please him. Evaluate your faith. Be determined to know that with that faith, And when you're constantly seeking after God, he will reward you. That's his promise. Meditate on it. Second of all, we have hope. It's identified often in scripture with the rapture. Christ is coming back. This world, the system of this world, it's all going to be torched one day. So many children of God get caught up in the monetary. They get caught up with the materialism. They think, oh, if we could only give this or if I could have that, right? But it's all money. Looking for the blessed hope, the glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. 
Titus 2.13. You need to be looking for the imminent return of Christ. And as you are looking, you need to be serving him. Memorize Titus 2.13. That's your second assignment. And number three, you need to have love. Each day for seven days, I want you to go and read 1 Corinthians 13, 4 through 8a. Love suffers long and is kind. I want you to go through the entire section of 1 Corinthians 13, 4 through 8a. I'd encourage you to memorize it, but at least read it for seven days. Ask God to give you the same character as the Thessalonian saints. Faith, hope, and love. So he can call you a mature Christian. He can call your church mature as well. Let's pray. Thank you, Heavenly Father. We have begun a great journey. I pray that we would be men and women of faith. We would be individuals that would take you at your word and act upon it. We can't please you without our faith. May we walk by faith and not sight. Then, Lord, I pray that we would have hope. We would think about your son's soon return. And as we are thinking about it, it would encourage your hearts that regardless of the trial we are going through, the emotional struggles that we might have, we would stay faithful. Not run away from the trial but remain under it, knowing our God is faithful and will see us through. And then finally, Lord, may we have the love of God control our lives. That first fruit of the Spirit mentioned in Galatians 5, that we can be like Christ. Lord, help us individually to display faith, hope, and love. And may we also do it as a church. I ask in Jesus' name, amen. Amen. 